if you happen to be a student of the English language, you will know that our language changes fairly rapidly. For instance, as I look out across this crowd, most of you look like you, um, how would I say this right? So I grew, I grew up in the 60s and the 70s. And so in the 60s and the 70s, we had certain words that were part of our vocabulary that we used to kind of capture a particular event. And so in the 70s, we might have said, that was cool. But in the 60s, some of you said, that's groovy. Let me just encourage you not to say that's groovy to your grandchildren or great-grandchildren, all right? Because our language has changed in the way we talk about certain things, um, you know, far out or uh, whatever. Those sayings change. And as the sayings change, uh, we find that some of the original meaning of those terms gets lost, but some of those sayings we carry on. For instance, a few weeks ago in one of my sermons, uh, I made a comment about uh, one of those sayings, to let the cat out of the bag. Remember that? Now, I don't know if you've ever tried to put a cat into a bag or not, but if you decide to do that, I suggest you wear long sleeves um, because the cats tend to fight that, or so I'm told. Um, So when I use that phrase, to let the cat out of the bag, that that is another way of saying uh, we're going to reveal something sooner than it's supposed to be, right? Or we're going to let you in on a secret, so to speak, let the cat out of the bag. So I went back and I did a little bit of research as to the origin of that particular phrase, to let the cat out of the bag. And as it turns out, that goes all the way back, or at least according to this particular source, goes back into the 1700s, at least the 1700s, uh, because in the 1700s, apparently, some of these street vendors would sell pigs to people as they were coming and making their way through the market. And the way that person, well, what do you do with the pig when you buy it, right? So uh, they would take those pigs and they would stuff them in sacks, and then the person could take the sack home. But some of the more unscrupulous vendors would uh, let the person pick out a pig, and then they would go behind, and when they stuffed it into the sack, they actually would put a cat in there. And so when the person got home with their pig, it was a cat, and the jig was up, so to speak. The origin of phrases. So if you say, let the cat out of the bag, you may not necessarily be talking literally. Matter of fact, I hope you don't. Uh, because if you're putting cats in bags, the SPCA might come after you. Here's another one for you. Something cost an arm and a leg. Any idea where that comes from? Go back into the 18th century, according to our source, and they said that uh, portraits in those particular days Think of George Washington, you know, the, the one we find at the National Gallery. And uh, portraits were typically uh, from mid-chest up, but not with arms or legs necessarily because uh, fingers especially, hands are a little difficult, so my art expert, I hope, would underscore for us. A little harder to, to paint and to capture the anatomy of a hand very well in a painting, and so those artists would normally not include them. But if you did want arms and legs in a picture, you had to pay extra. So it costs an arm and a leg. 
And if you'll take those two pieces of information I just gave you and a $5 bill, you can go to Starbucks and get a half a cup of coffee with that, okay? That's about all that's good for, except that it does underscore for us the evolution, if you will, of sayings and words and the meanings that we attach to them in English. Let's use, for instance, the word love. What does that mean? So uh, let me just say before I even start into this, Teresa and I will celebrate our 38th wedding anniversary on Thursday, if I make it. Um, I'm assuming that's for her. That applause is for her because I know me. But um, So if I make it to Thursday uh, and she doesn't, you know, kick me to the curb, then we'll make 38 years. So it would be a fair statement for me to say, I love her. I also would say, no, let me rephrase that. So before I even moved here, I had a conversation with a guy. We knew that we were coming. And so somewhere way out in, in uh, East Texas, a, a guy said, we were talking, and I said, I'm about to move to El Paso. And he said, El Paso. He said, I know El Paso. He said, you got to go to, you got to go to Chico's Tacos. <laughs> he said, you ever been to Chico's Tacos? I said, never have. He said, you got to go to Chico's Tacos. I said, well, you know, I like tacos. I'm, he said, no, these are tacos like nobody else does tacos. You got to go to Chico's Tacos. You're going to love Chico's Tacos. And so after one of, you know, I play golf with some of our retired uh, military men and some others every once in a while. And after one of those golf rounds, they asked me while we were finishing up, hey, you ever eat at Chico's Tacos? I said, no. They said, you got to go to Chico's Tacos. You're going to love Chico's Tacos. And so we went to Chico's Tacos. And so you might say, I love Chico's Tacos. I'm not going to say that, but you might say, I love Chico's Tacos. If I said, I love Chico's Tacos, and immediately turned to my wife and say, I love you, You see why I might not make 38 years quite? <laughs> so this word love carries a variety of connotations for us. You might love to watch certain TV programs or certain sports teams. You love your family members. You love certain kind of foods. Love is one of those words I think that we often can throw around without necessarily thinking about what we're saying, and in the process of doing that, we water it down. And so when we talk about love within the context of the church, this is one of those things that we need to really settle in on. Now, as a point of reference for you, this is now the fourth element of the list of discipleship character traits or disciple character traits that we have adopted as a church family. Our vision task force uh, brought before you some objectives, a report with some objectives back in May, and the church affirmed those, and we are working uh, feverishly on multiple fronts to try to address those objectives. But as we come into that, one of the ways that I wanted to address those objectives is to start off by highlight, highlighting those eight character traits 
of a disciple, as a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we've been doing that in these morning services now for this is now the fifth week for that. And we pick up the fourth of those character traits, or as I'm calling them through this, disciple DNA elements. Here's the way it reads. Number four for us, First Baptist Church should develop disciples who demonstrate extraordinary love and care for others. Let me run that by you again. First Baptist Church should develop disciples who demonstrate extraordinary love and care for others. What does Jesus teach us about love? Well, today what I want to do is I want to go to one of those that Jesus taught and see what that individual teaches us. Because we want to look at the first uh, letter to John, or first letter of John. So if you have your New Testament there, your Bible there, go to First John. And we're going to look at what this guy, this follower of Jesus Christ had to say. And I want us to start there because John is a guy who, as we looked earlier in the Gospels, John was known along with his brother as one of the sons of thunder. He's one of those rough-and-tumble kind of guys, and we have at least one incident in the New Testament, the Gospel, where uh, John just assumes that they should just exterminate a village rather than uh, love them. And so when we come to John's Gospel, we find some of these key statements that John gives. John 3.16, for instance, God so loved the world. I'll come back to that one. But in John's letter, the first epistle of John, uh, we, we find him just kind of settling in to teaching about the importance of love in the life of a follower of Jesus Christ. And so today, we're in John chapter, or excuse me, 1 John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, and we'll go through verse 12. We could easily go through the end of the chapter, but we'll stop at verse 12, and here we go, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love." In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So as we step into this, here's a question that forms the first part of this time we have together today. Who gets it? And specifically what I mean is who gets your love? That's an operative question for us in El Paso these days because it was just about two months ago now that an individual came into our community and took a rifle and executed over 20 people. Who gets your love? Do you love that person? It's not an easy question, actually. We, we can go to any number of places and give answers that we think might hold some weight for us, but the reality is that when we have this command that says love one another, and we'll explain that in just a few moments, I hope, but we find that there are those people in our path, one way or another, that don't seem to deserve our love. And yet, as our 
task force so aptly characterized it for us that we must be disciples who demonstrate extraordinary love and care for other people. What do you think about that individual who did that shooting? I suppose I'll take my place with every other pastor in the country today when I give the example that came out of a courtroom in Dallas this past week on Thursday to be exact. That trial of the ex-police officer who, according to the law and the jury, found her guilty, went in and murdered one of her neighbors. And it's in that context that the news reports were far different than what we're used to from news reports because they showed the clip and they played over the radio many, many different times the brother of that murder victim as he sat on the stand and he laid out why he loved that particular ex-police officer in a way that only God could create for him. And then he asked for permission to get up out of that testimony box and give that murderer of his brother a hug of forgiveness. Who gets your love? Maybe I could turn it around and say, who doesn't get our love? Because we all have those things. I I guess I would pull from that this basic kind of a statement or question better said, and, and that is that God surely wouldn't hold it against me if I did not love certain people. Because certain people we know are really unlovable, it seems. So we go back to verse 7, which is where we have the definitive answer to that. Beloved, let us love one another. So maybe we look for a trap door, an escape hatch, a, a loophole, if you will. Is there a loophole in this that might say that we don't really have to love everybody, just one another? Who is one another? Is John just talking about those who are inside the church, those who who we come to church with, and and that's the circle that we're supposed to love? Well, I would say to you definitively that there are other passages of Scripture that don't let us off the hook quite so easily as that sounds like. But even if we did that, let's look inside the church and see who gets my love or your love. Because clearly there are people, I, I want you to, in your mind's eye, I want you to visualize some people here for just a few moments. Take, for instance, that person in your life who is within the confines of the church who is easy to love. Let me give you one, not from this congregation, uh, but from early on in our ministry. As Teresa and I moved from Odessa to Plainview and I was going to school, the little church out at Halfway, Texas, First Baptist Church of Halfway, Texas, just a little farming community, had a blinking light, an abandoned schoolhouse, a little church, and a farm-to-market store uh, that essentially that was it, a couple of grain elevators, not much there in Halfway, Texas, except some great people. And in those two and a half years that we served that church, God put a guy in our life who has forever helped me to understand what it means to love people like Jesus did. His name was Llewellyn Hooper, or we called him Lou for short. Lou had been a, uh, Lou had been a farmer there for years and years. His family had a, had a homestead there, and uh, he was a deacon in our church, and Lou was just one of those great salt-of-the-earth kind of guys. And he pulled Teresa and me under 
his wings, so to speak, and taught us something about how to be a minister, how to love people to be exact. Lou was a great guy. And he loved us in many different ways, um, bringing canned goods, you know, like fresh home canned stuff, not like they make somewhere back in the back part of Walmart, but, you know, like in a jar with a screw-on lid, like black-eyed peas, like good stuff. Sometimes Lou would pull me aside and he would talk to me about how church works. He would pull me aside and he would talk about the heart of a pastor. Lou was a great guy. He taught us something about what it means to love Jesus Christ, to love people. Those kind of people inside the church to fill what John is saying here, those people are easy to love. Matter of fact, we like being loved by people like that and, in fact, returning that love back to them. It's a mutual investment. It's a great thing. But everybody inside the church is not a Lou Hooper. Think for a moment about the face of those people inside the body of Christ that are hard to love. Maybe even you've chosen to withhold your love from them. Let me give you the names of two people in our church that are those for me. I know I'm really not the sharpest knife in the drawer, but I'm sharper than that, I promise you. Isn't it true that there are some people who don't get our love for a variety of reasons, but we've chosen that they don't get in on that. Does God give us an escape hatch on this command that we have to love one another? Is He only talking about people inside the church? And even if He is, isn't it true that it's hard to love everybody inside the family, so to speak? I, I think that maybe sometimes our prayer, if we're really honest... Our prayer to God is, if you knew those people like I did, God, you wouldn't expect me to love them, which is a ridiculous thing on its face even. But just in case that captures you today, look at 7 and 8 again. Beloved, let us love one another. That's the command. And here he gives reasons. Here's why we don't have a, an escape hatch. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. That's why we say it's a DNA characteristic. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. He's the source. It is His way. Love is an identifying trait of a follower of Jesus Christ. You know, family resemblances. Now, I'm going to be real transparent with you here. Uh, I've seen a lot of babies through the years. By the way, if you're here today and you have a baby, I am not talking about your child, okay? I'll just tell you up front, I'm not talking about your child. But I have seen a lot of babies through the years, and I want to tell you that there are some babies that are just barely pretty, just barely there are some children, babies, that I look at and I go, oh, my goodness, that's a baby, all right. And the reason 
Invariably, it seems that when I see that in a child, it's because they look like their dad. (laughs) Okay, so in our family, I'll just, again, pull back the covers a little bit. In our family, I hear this a lot uh, from usually various family groups in our bigger family, but people look at a baby and they go, oh, he looks just like his and you can fill in the blank, his mom or his dad, you know, I don't ever see that. I just see that's a baby, okay? Uh, You know, but I know that there are family traits. So you may look at a baby like that and see characteristics of his father or his mother or her grandmother or however, you may find those kind of things, but I don't know that we always have that. I don't always see those things, but that is exactly what we're talking about here, what John's talking about here. He says, and I'll put it in my words, not his, but he says the the reason you can love is because of his love first, but the identifying marks that we carry as followers of Jesus Christ give evidence to we're part of his family. Now, that's a transformation thing because I'll promise you, when I came to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior, I didn't love people like he did. I'm not sure that I make that most days these days, but at least I'm not where I used to be. I'm not what I'm going to be, but I'm not what I used to be at that point. How about you? Do you carry the family distinctive of Jesus Christ in the way that you love other people, in the way that you see them. Love is to be applied to all, regardless of who that person is. And that's not because you're a good person. It's because Jesus Christ led the way for us. That's why I called this sermon, titled this sermon, Follow the Leader, because Jesus is the one who models that. It is his life in us, as we'll find in just a few moments in this text, It's his life in us that transforms us in the way we see people and the way we respond to people. So back to our task force report, we identify these eight different characteristics of a disciple. And number four is that we should develop, as a church, we should develop disciples who demonstrate extraordinary love and care for others. And we could have added to the end of that statement because Jesus did that and Jesus does that. That's who we are. So who gets your love? Now, probably what we need to do is to understand a little bit about what that means and what that looks like. Love is hard to define. I've given a definition a number of different times. It's, it's the investment of ourselves in other people that in doing that investment, it elevates them to places they could never go on their own. When a husband and wife both do that, both of them are elevated. I have 38 years worth of proof for that in our relationship. But if only one does that, then it gets lopsided, and it's all giving and all taking on one end. But it's hard for us to define that, so let me give you a few examples of what love is. From the mouths of some of the great theologians on our planet, children. So I went to a particular website, and uh, I asked the question, what do kids say about love? 
So let me give you five examples. This is what Karen said. Karen was seven years of age when she says, when you love somebody, your eyelashes go up and down and little stars come out of you. (laughs) This one's a little closer to, to an acceptable answer probably. Rebecca, age eight, said, when my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. Let me give you a few more. Emily was eight years of age when she said, love is when you kiss all the time. Then, when you get tired of kissing, you still want to be together and you talk more. My mommy and daddy are like that. They look gross when they kiss. (laughs) Point. Point taken. Billy, age four. These last two are much more to the point for us, I think. Billy, age four, said, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You know that your name is safe in their mouth. And finally, Jessica, who is age eight, she said, you really shouldn't say I love you unless you mean it. But if you mean it, you should say it a lot. People forget. What does love look like? If you were the one having to give an example of what love looks like, what would you say? If you had to explain to somebody how love works, what would you say? So John gives us four different statements here. I'm going to lean into the first one, and I'll just make the other three for you because I know that we'll be out of time by the time we get there. But four different statements about love that, that emerge out of this text. The first one comes uh, right off the bat in verse 9 when he says, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world, and here's the phrase I want you to hold on to, so that we might live through him. The word so that there translates a word that speaks to motive. What is the motivation for love that we bring to the table? As Christians. The question maybe turned a different way is, why did God send Jesus in the first place? We know, for instance, we could go to John 3.16. I told you we return to that. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Why did God send his son according to John 3.16? so that you and I might have life and not perish. According to 1 John 4, verse 9, why did God send his son Jesus Christ? So that we might live through him. Let me make sure that we get this, because this is really the entry point into the Christian life. If you say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the only way you can be a follower of Jesus Christ is to come to the point that you recognize that he is God in the flesh who came because of God's love for us. Why was that necessary? You see, sin is a problem for us. 
Now, that in our day and age, I'm not sure that's ever been any different. It's just a little more uh, noticeable in some ways today. But in our day and age, people are offended a lot. But they're especially offended when someone attaches the word sin to them individually. And I've had many conversations with people to talk about Jesus Christ and his forgiveness for our sin, and you have to own your sin in order to be able to appreciate what Jesus did for you. And so you start talking about sin with some people. They get kind of, kind of defensive and think that you're being abrasive with them. But the reality is that each of us was born with a sin nature. And I don't want to offend you, but I, I would be offensive if I didn't tell you the truth. And the reality is that that sin nature that we're born with manifests itself in a lot of different ways, but the bottom line way is that that sin nature is the part that says, I don't need God, I'll do life on my own. I'll be God. I will make the choices that will define my life. I'll be the master of my own destiny. I'll be the guy who pulls up his bootstraps and makes his way through life, and I don't need God's help, and I'm not even sure there is a God. All of those are statements that surround the basic sin nature that we have that says, I don't need God. I'm good enough for me to run the show. Every single one of us is born with that sin nature. And the problem that that is, a world of problems with that, but the primary problem that we have growing out of that is that that separates us from the way God intended life to be as he created us in the first place. Way back in Genesis' first couple of chapters, we find the account of creation where God created man and woman in his image. And then in chapter 3, sin enters in and he breaks God's design and breaks our relationship with him. And since then, mankind has been about being God themselves, and it just doesn't work. And so John reminds us here that God, because of his love for you and me, God sent Jesus Christ into this world to fix our sin problem. As it says in verse 9, that last part there, so that we might live through him. Another passage in Scripture says that we are dead in our trespasses and sin. In other words, we're living in that separated kind of way because of sin. And if Jesus doesn't bridge that gap for us, our relationship is irreparably broken outside of him, and we die in our sin. But Jesus came because of God's love for you and the motive was that you might live through him. And many of us in this room today, I know, have, have understood that well enough to say, in that case, I, I, I need Jesus in my life. But some of you in here today may not have come to that point. The reality is you need Jesus, just like the rest of us need Jesus. And his love makes himself available to you. In a little bit, we'll have an invitation. We always close our services with invitations. And the reason we do that is because we believe that it's a time for people to act on decisions that they made or maybe help get help making decisions. So we come to that time. It may be that some of you in here who don't know Jesus in a personal way but recognize your need for him, that life is not what you know God intended it to be for you, 
that you have the opportunity today to respond to his invitation of life, and that's what that invitation will be for. But many of us have long since made that choice, and then we've stepped back from the love of God, and we choose who we love and who we don't. The motivation of love is always for the good of the other person. And so the principle we draw from this is that love looks for and it addresses the need of the person, not necessarily the one who's giving it. I could talk a lot about what that does in a marriage when both are looking for and reaching into the need of the other person rather than their own. That'll be another sermon. Second of these characteristics, not just the motivation of love, but he also talks about the sequence of love. This is in verse 10 and verse 19. Paul, I mean, John says in verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. That's the, the order of love, the sequence of love. Verse 19, I'll just read it very quickly. He says it this way, we love because he first loved us. And so what this does is this means that we are proactive in loving people, not reactive to the need. So how do you see people? Do you see them well enough, and then do you respond to that from that vantage point? Because God saw us in need, he was proactive, and he sent Jesus Christ, and then now we have the opportunity to choose what do we do with that. So there's the motivation of love, the sequence of love, and then in verse 10 we also find the cost of love. And it says there that one of those big $4 seminary words, the word in this translation is propitiation. It means the atoning sacrifice. The cost of love is that Jesus had to die so that you could have life. Sometimes our approach to loving other people is based more out of convenience than it is out of anything else. Love is costly. That's the Jesus way. And then finally, verses 11 and 12 is the ultimate expression of love, and that is that love cannot be hidden. So we finish with follow the leader. When I was a minister of youth in in, uh, southeastern New Mexico, we were talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, and One Wednesday night, I went upstairs to the youth area, and we were ready to do our Bible study, and we had about, I don't know, uh, probably 100 kids and 30 workers up there, and I walked in, and I simply said, hey, y'all follow me, and I walked out of the building, and as I was walking out, I kind of glanced back, and kids were looking at each other like, what are we supposed to do, and so finally, a couple of the adults got up and started following me, and we walked out, and I walked all the way off of our church property. It was about like ours here. Walked across the street. There was an elementary school there, and I walked them all the way across the playground at the elementary school. Never said a word. I just kept walking. And here's these kids. They're just following me along. And, uh, and of course, you know, nowadays I probably wouldn't do that because I know I'd lose some of them, and then I'd be liable. But um, So we walked part of the neighborhood, and we came back to the church and got upstairs to the youth room, and they're all, you know, they, they just, what, what, are we, what was that all about? And I turned, and I, the whole lesson simply was this. All of us are following somebody. Be careful who you choose to follow. And if you're going to be a follower of Jesus Christ, let's pray. Father, this message is in some ways is very challenging 
for us. We believe that we do a pretty good job loving some people, but if we're really honest and really willing to let you search our lives, we see places and people that we have long since decided that we will not love. They are far below the level of worthiness of receiving our love, and so we just essentially kick them to the curb of life wrong. It's not your way, and so we ask that you would be Lord in those parts of our lives. Father, my prayer is that if there's anyone here today who hasn't experienced your love through Jesus Christ, that today would be the day that changes all of that. We pray that you would reach through your love into their lives of brokenness and wandering and emptiness and that you would step in with your love that wins the day. Father, we also pray that you'd help us to see people, to look over those forgotten ones in our society, not to look over them anymore, but look over into their lives. And in that, to see the opportunity to invest your love. Help us to be great at this, not just acceptable, but as a church and as individual Christians, help us to be great at sharing your love and your life and connecting people with you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to ask you to stand and sing as we go into this time of invitation.